0: For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock, you are my glory, you are the lifter of my hi and welcome to the rock podcast. Even though King Ahaz had a godly father and a very godly grandfather who reigned before him, he turned out quite differently. Even his son Hezekiah, who succeeds him, is faithful. Here in 2 Kings chapter 16, we hear his story. Now let's join Pastor Ross with the message entitled, The Sad Reign of King Ahaz. Alrighty, righty, let's get started. 2 Kings chapter 16. Working our way, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through the Old Testament, and we find ourselves at the 16th chapter of 2 Kings. We're going to ask the Lord for his blessing and dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great and gracious presence among us tonight. We pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the wonderful things that you have for us in your word and Tonight, Lord, it's just learning what not to do by a bad example, Lord, and, and we could save ourselves a lot of heartache by just paying attention, so help us to do that, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, as we Christians know, God keeps his promises, all of them, the positive ones that end with blessing and the negative ones that don't have very pleasant uh, outcomes as well. An example of a negative promise uh, is in Deuteronomy chapter four and verses 25 and following. And we're watching the effects of this promise to Israel coming to pass, but it's a negative promise. And right before they went into the promised land, the the, the new generation, they're right about to go in. And as we discovered last week, um, uh, the Lord said through Moses, after you have lived in the promised land a long time, your, your kids and your grandkids, if you forsake me and you live as pagans and you provoke me and you bite the hand that feeds, essentially, you'll forfeit the privilege, you'll be ousted, you'll be scattered, you'll be destroyed. And uh, that, we are watching that happen. As God's patience for two, three hundred years with His people, but uh, we, as we have seen even last time, uh, they are about to forfeit the Promised Land. Now, I have mentioned before on Sunday that the Promised Land is really not a type of heaven, and and there are reasons for that. Uh, one is is that they're going to get ousted because of their bad behavior. That that's not going to happen in heaven. Right? And another thing is once they're in the promised land, uh, they have to fight to maintain it. They've got to fight bad guys. They've got to do a lot of work there. And that's not the same as in heaven. And so the promised land really represents our spiritual inheritance in Christ primarily. It's everything God wants for us. It's the abundant life that God has for every one of his children that's a, a better typology of what it means uh, to apply any spiritual truth about the promised land to Christian lives. And so uh, here's, here's the chart. I think we need to refresh our memories a little bit as usual. Now, uh, the promise went out. It's been 400 years since the Lord said, hey, you may live in the promised land a long time, but if you forsake me... I'm going to oust you, all right? So through David, David's the first king, his son Solomon, and Solomon forsakes the Lord. And he starts worshiping idols. And the Lord says, hey, listen, Solomon, you and the people following your idolatry, I'm going to rip the kingdom from you. And he does that not in Solomon's lifetime but in his son Rehoboam's lifetime, and he brings a, a, a co-commander, Jeroboam, and now we have a split, we have civil war, and there's 722 BC, we have the end of the north, Israel. And then 100 and, uh, what is it? 63 more years than the fall of Judah. And so we're just watching God patiently wait, but it's kind of a countdown to disaster here. It's kind of sad to watch that happen. Now there's from David, the Lord made a promise to David and said, you know what? Uh, I'm going to bring uh, judgment on my people who are forsaking me, but, but for your sake, I'm going to keep the line all the way down to Jesus. And so everyone in this list is related to David Everybody over here—they're just all of these represent different dynasties or different families, and so the yellow are the the players right now who are now alive in Second Kings sixteen. So uh, last time we made it down to here. The king of Assyria has already come in and taken large portions of the promised people away. And so Galilee and the north are now on their way marching away. And this guy uh, and his uh, Hosea are left. And we're talking about that tonight. And now all we have are the the list of the Judean kings left. And we're going to follow. That's the rest of the story here. And so it's just about over for uh, the north, uh, for Israel. There's 40 by 30 square miles left that has not fallen in the north. So this guy has been on the throne. or oh, We're going to talk about this guy tonight. All oh, the whole chapter is about this guy. But it's when these guys were still alive. So even though last week they died, when we go to talk about him, there's incidents about Life when they were alive. Does that make sense? It made sense to me, but the look on your faces, I'm not so sure. All right, so uh, for one last time here, the, this guy murdered this guy murdered this guy to get his position, and this guy is going to murder this guy to get his position. It's just the trend of the times right now. Uh, so with that said, these guys are Israel's toast. They're, they're all but gone. There's still just that 40-mile strip that's waiting to be conquered. And now, meanwhile, verse 1, over in Judah in the south. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramalia, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. All right, let's pause there. So after 68 years, here's where, here's where we're at. These two guys, grandpa and dad, a total of 68 years or so of faithfulness. And now, in spite of a godly example of David, they're always called, uh, they did or did not follow the ways of their father, David, even though he's 11 times removed. He's the great-grandson time to the 11th power, right? Uh, Ahaz's. And so, what's interesting here is go figure, I mean, number one, we're going to have Ahaz's evil heart. Okay, so chapter 16, the chapter we're looking at tonight really is about Ahaz, his godless character, uh, his ill fated war, and also his pathetic end. All right? So, if you're taking notes, first we're gonna look at Ahaz's evil heart. He has the dubious distinction of being like the worst king ever. There's a few that rival one another for that position, but he's right up there. And so, check this out go figure. You've got, look at where he's sandwiched in between. Grandpa is one of the most famous good kings in the whole place, all right? In both kingdoms, that's grandpa. Dad is a good man. Then this Ahaz, he's particularly horrible. He's the son and grandson, and his son is completely faithful. He's in the middle. This, this 20-year-old Hellion named And I call him a hellion because, you know, look what he's doing. He's worshiping the God of Molech by offering his children on an altar. And it just, I could describe it to you. It's unspeakable. You you don't want to go there. And so sandwiched in between... Uh, a godly grandfather, a godly father, and his own godly son, and what Hezekiah, somebody said Hezekiah probably came to know the Lord because he was praying so fervently that he wouldn't end up sacrificed to Molech as well, <laughs> so, as his brothers and sisters had been. So uh, he found the Lord, and sometimes that's what it takes, is that kind of pressure, Amen? Amen? Oh, there you are. All right. All right. So, you know, that's the deal. Free will. You know, I just stopped and said, what is up with this guy? To turn your back on such a godly heritage like that, uh, just terrible. Free will. It's a necessary ingredient in a kingdom where love is front and center One writer put it this way about having this kid in the middle of all this goodness be so evil and wicked and blood-related. There's nothing more impactful on a child than having parents who believe and raise their children to know and obey the Lord. But in the end, it must always come down to free will for the individual. For each heart chooses to follow a good example or reject it in unbelief. And so... Uh, Proverbs 22 and verse 6, just in parking here because it's just such an impactful thing to look at. Proverbs 22:6 6 says, train up a child in the way he or she should go. And in the end, the spirit of it is, in the end, generally speaking, it's difficult for somebody who was raised with love and faith and hope and joy and order to leave that. For the emptiness and chaos and sin of the world, it's difficult to leave, but it's not impossible as the Ahaz's in the world have proven, unfortunately. So mom and dad, do your best and your children and your grandchildren must make their own decisions. And you can make it hard for them to want to leave, but you can't make it impossible so our job is to create an environment and through our example of what, how we live for Christ uh, to make, as Titus chapter 2 says, to make the gospel attractive. Not just by preaching it, but by, by living it and creating an environment that, that's healthy and, and that they want to stay in. And so, you know, I have down here, stop blaming yourself and spend your energies in a more productive way, like praying for them, and um, keep modeling, keep loving, keep praying, and keep hoping. What else can you do? So here we go. We got this 20-year-old with a crown. Uh, he has. What do you get when you get you mix a 20-year-old up with a crown, servants, power, and money? Well, you can get a whole lot of obnoxious, and you also can. It can be lethal, and and in this case, it will be depending on the 20-year-old. Because his great, great, great times seven more grandfather at 16 was slaying Goliath. So it depends on the 20 year old, you know? This 20 year old should not have been given a scepter. Amen? So first of all, it starts with idolatry. And under every spreading tree just really is code for the shrines and the priestesses and the prostitution. So there was sexual immorality that caught this 20-year-old right from the jump. And so that's what started it. That was the hook. And, you know, uh, but he goes a step further. And instead of just worshiping Baal and Ashtara then he goes to Molech. And so, you know, the writers are quick to say, you know, when you sin and when you give in to sin, it's like pouring gasoline on the fire. And and uh, when, you, when you answer the call to lust and to have greed, all you're doing is making your sinful nature want more and to go higher and, and more profound ways of sacrificing beautiful, wonderful things so that you can get what you're after. And so just really sad to see that happen. One writer said, obeying lust throws fuel on the fire and the flames only burn hotter and higher. The only answer for lust is to starve it. Now, another pastor wrote this. If, is there that great a difference between a man today who puts his kids in peril as he pursues his own selfish interests. A father who'd rather pay homage to his God of lust and greed than remain faithful to his wife and kids has a kindred spirit with Ahaz willing to sacrifice his own children. You know, you can kill him with fire to, to Molech or you can kill him by destroying the family and ruining their lives and some of them never rebound. Some of those kids never rebounded, but for the grace of God. Uh, By the way, it was the death penalty in Leviticus chapter 20 if they were to imitate the Canaanites worshiping Molech and sacrificing their kids. Now, what's very interesting to me is that, and that, by the way, they used to do this with Molech um, in the Valley of Hinnom which is called Gehenna. And it was such a wicked place that it it becomes the byword for hell, the final destination of those who perish. And Jesus uses this uh, exact phrase, Gehenna, to describe uh, the term hell. So uh, what's interesting to me about this whole uh, Molech and... uh, child sacrifice thing is in Leviticus 18. There's a whole bunch of laws and they they sound crazy to us. They're they're so perverted and twisted and and they're so they're unspeakable uh, perversions sexually. Do not do this, do not do that, do not do this, right? And at the end of Leviticus 18, something very insightful. It says this at the end of the list, don't do that, don't do this, and we're going, don't think I want to do that, you know? But you're like, why are you even saying that? It says at the end of the list, it says, this is what the Canaanites did, and this is why I brought you in to displace them and bring judgment on them. They didn't get wiped out because they were Canaanites. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a spiritual thing that God in Genesis chapter 15 or so says that he was striving with the Canaanites for 400 years. So at the end of the long list that just it makes you nauseous to read, it says, that's why you came in here. That's why I brought judgment on them. And if you do those things, I will judge you and kick you out. Here we are. Goodbye. <laughs> Wave goodbye. Wave goodbye because now we've got them doing the same thing. The king's doing it as the king, so go the people, and so that's what's going on. You know. So we're here. Uh, the north is gone, and there's an eviction notice on the south, starting with Ahaz. There, you've got 100 years left, and to eviction. Continuing on now, verse five. Now then, Rezin, king of Aram, is Syria. So I'll always call it Syria from now on. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, who we we know is in Israel, king of Israel, marches up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz, but they couldn't overpower him really at first. <laughs> At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elah for Aram by driving out the men of Judah. Edomites then moved into Elah and have lived there to this day. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal, that means puppet king, I'm I'm your slave. I may be a king, but I'm here just to serve you. Come up and save me out of the hand of these two kings, the king of Syria and the king of Israel, who are attacking me. And Ahaz takes the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. Assyria is like a massive world power, right? The king of Assyria uh, complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to cure and put resin to death. Okay, so we have seen Ahaz's evil heart now observe Ahaz's unbelief. Now, every bad guy has his price, and the king of Assyria is no exception. He's, he's well known for taking bribes and coming to the aid of people in distress for the right uh, price. Um, Now Ahaz, his unbelief, he'd rather bribe the king of Assyria than simply believe the Lord that the Lord was enough to take care of these two. All right, so uh, let me show you uh, the divided kingdom and the players now here. Here's what's going on. Here's Ahaz, the 20-year-old, right? He's got life by the tail, right? So the Lord stirs up these two. There's an alliance here. They're mad at him because they want, Assyria's been coming in. Assyria's the world power and as I'll show you, why don't I, I have a, a map. This is a serious power <laughs> and they have not yet come down here. They have started with Israel, but they got another hundred years to go before they're going to take the whole thing, but they will eventually take the whole thing. And so they're coming in. So back to the other one, Right? Oh, let me show you modern day just to show you how much Assyria, this is all Assyria control. So back to the divided kingdom. They're coming in, okay? They're, this is them. <laughs> and these guys want this guy to join with them to fight off the king of Assyria. He, did, For whatever reason, he doesn't want to. And so they're mad at him. So they said, let's just wipe him off the face of the earth and then we'll handle Assyria ourselves. And so uh, that's, I'm going to keep that up there. So as we talk, you know, you can keep it straight in your head with all these names and what have you. And so uh, that's the, the, the human reason why they're ganging up on Judah. The spiritual reason is you kill. David's descendants here, and you don't have a Jesus. You don't have a savior. So there's a devil, and the devil always is stirring up, destroy Israel, destroy the line, so that his own conqueror, he was promised in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that through this, the woman, the line, his conqueror would come. And so he, he wants to do away with his conqueror before his conqueror's born. And so there's always a supernatural reason for hating the Jews. The Jews, it's a tiny little strip of land the size of New Jersey. Why is the whole world mad at a little strip of land the size of New Jersey? Well, because it's supernatural. If you don't have the Jews, you don't have God's plan. God's plan, he comes back and the Jews convert and and the millennial kingdom's all about Israel being a superpower. So if you don't have the Jews, you don't have God's plan. So wipe out the Jews if you can. Well, good luck. Because, <laughs> you know, all the holidays about the Jews are about, look, they tried to kill us. They didn't. God saved us. Let's eat. All right? That's all the holidays. <laughs> they can't kill God's people. That's dumb. All right. So verse 5, Judah resists at first. So they come down, and Judah, Judah holds her own. Right. So... But Judah can only hold out so long. So as Judah or Ahaz is placed in a vice grip, okay? So now, according to Second Chronicles 28, that gives you the details of their attack, they come down and they, they kill about 120,000 soldiers here and they take 200,000 civilian hostages away from Judah and up to Israel, right? And then... This dude comes down this way and he, he takes this city. And now Ahaz is trapped from the north and he's trapped from the south. And what does he do? He panics and he's gonna call for the big gun and he's gonna offer him some money. Now, what's so cool about this is check this out. These guys are are winning here. They've got him in the death grip here. And now he he understands, I'm finished. Guess who God sends to Ahaz to encourage him? Isaiah. And I'm going to read with you the prophecy that Isaiah gives Ahaz when he's about to be crushed to death on both ends. Here it is. This is the new living. During the reign of Ahaz, this is Isaiah 7. During the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, and grandson of Uzziah, the two good guys, Jerusalem was attacked by King Rezin of Aram and King Pekah of Israel. The city withstood the attack, however, and was not taken. The news had come to the royal court. Syria is allied with Israel, the north, against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet King Ahaz. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those two burned out embers. I love the Lord's take on our enemies. He's like, are you kidding me? Well, we're like, they're two burning torches. He goes, uh, no, they're not. They're two little burned out embers, you know, smoldering. So he says, tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those two burned out embers, king uh, of of Syria and king of Israel. Yes, the kings of Syria and Israel are coming against you, Isaiah is saying. They are saying, we will invade Judah and throw its people into panic. Then we'll fight our way into Jerusalem and replace Judah's king. That will be Ahaz. But this is what the sovereign Lord says, This invasion will never happen. Do you not believe me? If you want me to protect you, learn to believe what I say. Oh, that's a, if I were you, I'd be underlining this right here. If you want me to protect you, if you want to enjoy my blessings, if you want to get on with this thing, learn to believe what I say. Ask me for a signing he has to prove that I will crush your enemies as I have promised. Ask for anything you like and make it as difficult as you want. But the king refused. No, he says, I would never test the Lord like that. And then I wrote in there, oh, please. This is the guy who's tossing his kids in the fire. You know, oh, God of Molech, here's my, my son for you. Oh, but I would never ask the Lord, God, give me a sign because I'm not that kind of guy. <laughs> oh, all right, then the Lord says, oh, I hope you recognize where we're going here. Recognize this verse? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. This is the Christmas. This is Christmas. He's saying, listen, the word virgin can mean young woman. He's saying in the immediate context of this prophecy, the royal line will continue. They're not going to wipe out David's line. The young woman is going to have David's heir, right? But ultimately, the bigger picture, the Messiah will not be destroyed here by destroying Judah. Judah. Because he will be coming through the womb of a virgin, and he will be called the God-man, God with us. That's the context of Christmas. And by the way, it goes on to all the way to 9, where it's Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is all the context of Isaiah, 7 to 9 is when Ahaz is getting squeezed in the, in the vice grip of death and thinking, here goes David. Everybody's looking, there goes the hope to David that he will, will, will bring forth through his biological descendants a savior of the world. And everybody's thinking it's, it's gone. And Isaiah 7 to 9 is saying, Christmas is on. And it doesn't matter what it looks like. This promise is going through, and Jesus will be born. Isn't that awesome? I got all excited. Can you tell? <laughs> all right. As long as I'm entertained, right? All right, back to the, yeah, divided, so we can keep these guys all straight in our minds. And so, so what's cool about how God is going to rescue now? So, so what does he do? He... he he doesn't believe Isaiah. And so, what he does, instead of trusting in the Lord, you could have read this beautiful chapter about this guy. But instead, we read that he goes, Okay, Isaiah, you go on. You know, I'm going to take care of this, you know, the, my way. <laughs> and so, he sends a message up there to uh, the big gun, right? And he says, Listen, I hear you like silver and gold. Here's a gift. I was thinking of you the other day. Um, And did I mention um, I'm your biggest fan and your slave? (laughs) And I'm about to be destroyed by two kings that don't like me very much. And it would be very nice if you could make them disappear. Um, And here's some money. And the guy uh, says, okay, I could do that. The bribe worked and the the royal line is going to be rescued now. Uh, let's finish the chapter, 10 through uh, the end of the chapter. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to, yeah, so by the way, he, he attacks and kills the king of Syria. And also in the scuffle, uh, King Pekah is going dies because Hoshea, back to the chart. this dude, in the chaos, of the king of Assyria coming in and killing the king of Syria, this dude says, okay, I'm gonna kill you because I want the throne, and now he's on the throne, okay? But he's only on the throne with the 40 square miles. That's all he's got, but he doesn't care. He wants the 40 square miles, apparently. That's how they are. Okay, back to verse 10. So now, you know, the threat's gone, and Ahaz wants to go meet his hero, the savior. Verse 10, then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser. What a fun name to say. Can you imagine? He always had to spell that to people. (laughs) I'm going to call him TP from now on, all right? (laughs) Whoops. Maybe not. Okay, so to meet his hero and his new boss, (laughs) okay? uh, King of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus. So Damascus is up in Syria, so he's up north. And he sent to Uriah, his homeboy priest at home, a, a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah, the priest, builds an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz has sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returns to Jerusalem. Verse 12... When the king comes back from Damascus and sees the altar, he approaches it and presents offerings on it. He offers up burnt offerings and grain offerings and poured out his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his fellowship offerings on the altar. So this is a new altar, not the real altar. The bronze altar that stood before the the Lord, he brought from the front of the temple From between the new altar and the temple of the Lord and put it on the north side of, okay, so he moved the altar to the rear, all right? Verse 15, King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest on the large new altar, offer the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering the king's burnt offering and his grain offering and the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering. Sprinkle on the altar all the blood of the burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I will use the bronze altar for seeking guidance. So he's gonna use that for witchcraft. The real altar of the Lord, he's moved to the back for his personal use for divination. Ah, Verse 16, Oh, but he wouldn't test the Lord. He's not that kind of guy. (laughs) Verse 16. And Uriah the priest did exactly as King Ahaz had ordered. King Ahaz took away the side panels and removed the basins from the movable stands. He removed the sea. The sea was the gigantic um, basin of cleansing water that stood in front of the temple. Okay, he removed the sea from the bronze bulls that supported it and set it on a stone base. There's a reason for that. We'll talk about it. Verse 18, he took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entryway outside the temple of the Lord in deference to the king of Assyria. As for the other terrible events of the reign of Ahaz and what he did, Aren't they written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. All right, so number one, we saw Ahaz's evil heart. Number two, we observed his wicked unbelief. And now, finally, number three, Ahaz's spiritual arrogance. Oh, my word. For a guy who tells Isaiah that, you know, oh, I would never want to test the Lord. He's sure doing a pretty good job of it. You know, he's taken it upon himself to redesign the temple and reorder how the Lord is worshipped by his people. Wow. And he thinks he's doing a good job. He thinks he's improving he, he's modernizing the temple. He's making it more like the way the world worships, all right? Uh, one, one writer wrote this. Unbelievers' perceptions of themselves is about as accurate as looking at oneself in a funhouse mirror. Without the Holy Spirit's help and without the word of God, we could never know the true spiritual depravity of our own souls. There's too much self-love and deception in the human heart to be able to see and acknowledge the sad truth of our own sinfulness. This guy, I would never do that. I'm a pretty good guy. I don't test the Lord. You know, what am I doing? I'm making the offerings. I'm improving the place. I'm moving the furnishings around the way I saw it Oh, When I went to Damascus, I saw how oh they the Syrians worship. Oh, my word. It's so beautiful. He thinks... He thinks he's right on track, and that's kind of the way it is. And so uh, now we've got his changes he wants to make to the temple, uh, a DIY network show. You know, it's called, you know, the Extreme Temple Makeover, all right? And so, you know... He's proud of the modern new look. He's going to say, this place is so dated, you know. So what happens is he goes to Syria and he's wowed by this golden, sparkle, wonderful uh, altar. And in verse 10, you know, he's so impressed that he sends a sketch, some blueprints, you know, up. Uh, back to Jerusalem and he says modernize things man we gotta we gotta worship the way the world worships okay we gotta make things less offensive for our new boss TP you know <laughs> so so he sends the blueprints down and spineless high priest Uriah yes sir and everybody else he had to have help you know sometimes it just takes one person to stand up and say are you kidding me?" This is evil. This is wrong. You need to stop this madness. But you're not going to find that down there because it's corrupt and they're ready to be exiled. You know. So he, in verses uh, 12 through 13, he returns to Jerusalem and the altar's already made. And he, and he, and he goes to dedicate it. So here he is dedicating this pagan, blasphemous, Altar, he's by sacrificing what is rightfully to be sacrificed, and it's it's just a show. So he's sacrificing on this monstrosity there, and 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 but he's doing it the right way. He's making these are real offerings they're supposed to be making, but he's making it on a pagan altar, and everybody in the commentaries calls attention to. Sin making you insane. It just makes you crazy, your perception of things. He, he thinks he's worshiping God. He's in the temple. He's offering all the fellowship offerings, all the, all the offerings that are listed there that he's making, they are all the sweet savor offerings. They're all the communal offerings that, that typify communion and reconciliation and, and, and fellowship with God but he's doing it on a, from a godless heart on a pagan altar. It, it, it's just a joke. It's a terrible joke. And sin will make you crazy. It'll, it'll make you think, hey, I'm, I'm worshiping the Lord and look at, a, look at the improvements I'm making for people. And, and yet he's doing something blasphemous. Remember Jesus told the disciples on the night he was betrayed, hey, listen, heads up. People are going to kill you and think they're serving God. That's what happens when you when you're, when you you harden your heart to God, it will make you insane. And you will not be able to know what's right, what's wrong, what's up, what's down. You, your whole world will be crazy like Ahaz. So verses 12 and 13, uh, all these various offerings, they're such beautiful offerings, but they're done in such a godless and pagan way. Way The drink offering, he's offering there. The drink offering is the joy of life poured out to God and us of spirit-led obedience and oh, just what a joke. Religious people in black robes and beads and incense and candles doing the, the most terrible things in the name of God. One writer put it this way, people who worship God but live in dishonoring ways are much like Ahaz offering and his altar. The sinful, uninvolved heart negates any meaning of the outward form of religious worship. So they're doing all the things and outwardly somebody's looking on and saying, oh yeah, those are all the offerings prescribed by Moses. Except He took the altar away, and it's in the back where he's using it for witchcraft, and there's a Syrian pagan altar in the front, and they're doing it that way because we're doing worship the way we want to do worship, how we want to do it. And so, kind of like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were keeping ceremonially clean while they were killing Jesus. Listen to this. When the Jewish leaders, reading John 18, when the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, now, uh, by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they didn't enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover dinner. Sin makes you insane. They think that they're worshiping God. And so, oh, we can't go inside Pontius Pilate's place because if we go through them, we'll be unclean because we went into the archway of a Gentile. This is not in the Bible. This is a Pharisee thing, right? So they're keeping their religious rules on the outside while they're murdering the son of God. And that just, just scares me. I think about how mixed up you can get and how deceived you can be, to think everything's cool. And you don't have to have black robes to be spiritually insane. I mean, there are people who tithe and then talk smack about people. Or, or they lift their hands in worship and worship and then gossip and envy and all of this other stuff. You know, there are people, as James put it, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. We serve in public ministry, but in private, we're sexually immoral. So you're not worshiping God. You're being like Ahaz. You know, 2 Timothy is at 3, verse 5, that says, in the last days, there'll be a form of religion that looks very spiritual on the outside, but inside, it lacks moral transformation and life. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. Outward spirituality. Look at all the offerings. Oh, did did, did you leave out the part that it's a pagan uh, altar and you move the real altar to the back? And why did they move the altar to the back? Well, it's bronze and it's unappealing, says the writers. And so they prefer the gold pagan altar. So they put the unappealing altar, and by the way, bronze is for judgment in the Bible. So the Lord said, make the altar, the sacrifice, where the judgment has to happen, of bronze. And so he says, oh, that's, oh we, it's unappealing. So we put it in the back, and it's so much like the emergent church today. To to take the bronze, unappealing, offensive things, because the altar's the first thing you see. It's in front of the temple, right? So you take the cross and the blood of Jesus and the perishing in hell, and we're gonna take the judgment things, the bronze things, and we're gonna put it in the back and put the gold worldly altar that's more appealing and attractive out in front will replace the not so fun to look at with the sparkling, dazzling altar of Damascus. That's what we're doing. That's what I see all the time. I had somebody who leads a campus ministry years ago in this town or a town nearby say say to me, I'm leading worship there, but I've been told no songs about the blood of Jesus, no songs about the cross, no songs about sin. Why? Because we have people coming and we don't want to offend anybody. This is exactly what the spiritual application is. Take that ugly bronze judgment thing that stands in your face that somebody's going to die on. There's going to be blood on it. If you want to get anywhere near God, you're going to have to get through that ugly bronze judgment judgment bloody mess move it to the back bring in the gold dazzling thing oh God is a God of love and patience all the sweet stuff only the sweet stuff only but that's not the way God put it he put the cross right in front that's the only way anybody's going to get in is through the cross so the new altar was aesthetically more pleasing the new Christianity is much more pleasing too except it's false. Now, uh, in verse 17, if you change the gospel, you don't have the gospel. And if we're saved by the gospel, but you change the gospel, you cannot be saved by the changed gospel. Did you follow that? Good, because I did not. All right, verse 17, we're almost done. Verse 17, love this part. He, he makes off with some valuables. Here's what he's doing. He sees brass. Brass is valuable. Guess who spent all the money in the bank account to hire TP to come in and do, right? Right. He needs money. So he taking the brass and the little stands and taking the big, sea of the water now is not resting on the brass uh, uh, bulls. It's resting on the ground. Why? Because he's using that to make a little money for himself. He's pocketing things right there. You know, that just reminded me, and I'm probably going to get flack for saying this, which now made you all pay attention, which I'm glad for. <laughs> and I did some research to find out because it made me think of this after they were criticized for taking $190,000 worth of China, flatware, rugs, television, sofas, and other gifts designated to remain in that White House with them when they left, the Clintons announced last week that they would pay $86,000 worth of gifts or nearly half the amount of what they took. That's from ABC News. You... you you may have access to the temple, but you can't help yourself, your public servant. That doesn't belong to you. Amen? So it's not just a problem 3,000 years ago. Amen? Verse 18. Now, you, you didn't catch this because I didn't know what was going on here, but this verse, lastly, here, verse 18. The bottom line is is that he is removing the access to the private palace to the temple. He's taken that away so that he can't have easy access to the temple from the private palace. And that's in deference to Tiglath-Pileser. So Tiglath-Pileser says... Uh, That connection makes it too easy for the leaders and the king to just walk out a door and be in the temple. I want that removed. Oh, he's smart. He wants everybody to be worshiping him and his gods. And he can't risk having easy access into the temple because he knows if there's easy access, the king might just walk out the door and something's going to happen in his heart. He's going to long for the old days or the Holy Spirit's going to talk to him. Or, so he wants a separation of, of government and the religious state. He wants it separated. So he says, uh, shut the door there. You know, I don't want anybody backsliding in reverse. <laughs> you know, having a little revival there. And so for TP's sake, uh, they take that door out. And then finally, the last couple of verses, if you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 28, it adds a few things. But uh, he, dis- he discontinues publish- public worship. So they stop allowing people to come to worship the Lord because the king of Assyria has other designs. And So now, for a good long while, there's no worshiping of God in the temple at all. Thanks to a guy who could have said, thank you, Isaiah. Wow. I'm going to take you at his word and I'm going to repent of my sins and trust in the Lord. Instead of that, this is the kind of thing he does and ends his life like that. So he rests with his fathers, which is a nice way of saying he died, and he's on to his reward. Wow. Now, you know, what if his dad and his grandfather, his dad and mom and his grandparents were alive during this time? They'd be scratching their heads. Well, what happened to him? Can you explain it? Nobody can. Nobody can, just terrible. Hebrews 10 and verse 13, for about his death. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But Proverbs 18 and verse 10, on a happier note, the name of the Lord is a fortified tower. Those put right with God run to it and are safe. Amen? Amen. All right, here come the five statements, five reflective statements from this chapter. What i like to do is just reread the chapter after I've studied and come out with just five things for me. I'm going to share them with you. Number one, faith in God always comes down to the free will of the individual, whether they are rejecting a bad example and turning to God, or rejecting a good example and turning from God. Number two, giving into sin will always make you want more, and will always demand a greater sacrifice, which you will be willing to give even if it's as valuable as your children. Three, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And I borrowed that from Psalm 118 and verse nine. Number four, the gospel, including the unattractive parts, must remain front and center and not replaced by the less offensive altars of this world. Amen. And lastly, number five, let's be careful of Ahaz's manner of worship. Outward religious activity, going through the motions without inward moral transformation. Perfect on the outside and perfectly dead on the inside. That's not for us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter and these lessons. And now we just pray that, Holy Spirit, you'd make it alive to us. And help us to recall in the moments when we need it out in the world, these great truths that keep us on the straight and narrow path, a path that few find. Many go the other way, Lord, but help us to not um, destroy our Ourselves by running after sin in the world, but to let you um, bless us with your peace and your goodness. Help us, Lord, to love you with all of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.